My story starts in Genesis chapter 1, as every story starts in chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God, and there's no better place to start. And my thought is about God and later on his relationship with mankind. What we do know is uh, there was and is such a person as God. We don't know exactly how he came into being. And the Bible just basically says, and God said, I'm God, I've always been there. So we've got to really start from that point. And somewhere there, he um, started creating the heavenly host. We don't know exactly in what order or what he created a, uh, a son who became late, came to earth in the name of Jesus, created the Holy Spirit. Uh, he created heavenly host, angels uh, who don't have wings. And um, he created three special ones, Michael, Gabriel and Lucifer. We know Lucifer later on fell from grace. Um, we know that there were beings called cherubims who do have wings. And uh, they were sort of almost like guards. And, um, and then at some point then in the eons of history, um, he decided to start creating the universe as we know it. And again, we don't know all the details. But that was done in stages. We read in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, he made the earth exactly where it should be. And many, many uh, centuries ago, mankind believed that the earth was the centre of the universe. We know now, in a sense, physically, it's not the case. In actual fact, the sun is the centre of our little solar system in the middle of the, our part in the Milky Way galaxy. But uh, really, the earth is the centre of the universe because that was the whole concentration of God. And uh, he then brought life to the planet. And then uh, we know that he had brought in animals later on. And later on, we might just look in, um, in verse uh, 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and, after, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and, every, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God created him, male and female created he them. So this was something really special. All the rest was done and everything was lovely, but now he wanted somebody he could communicate with, somebody who was like God and like the heavenly host there. We know we don't know exactly what it meant by in his image, but what we do know is that God is in three parts, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we are in three parts, body, soul and spirit, and maybe other things make us similar. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, they've kept that promise. There's eight billion of us now. And replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. That is my watch. And over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in which... Uh, is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the earth, and everything that creepeth in the earth, wherein is life. I have given every herb, green herb, to meat, for meat, and, I, and it was so. And then it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So it's a very high light point. There's a moment of uh, 
great victory, you might say, and everything he's created and everything's in harmony. He makes this uh, man and this woman exactly at the same moment. The animal's already there and all the fish in the sea and all the birds in the air and so on. And, and when he looked at the whole thing, he was very pleased with it. And they were told, these people, to go out and cover the earth. And then, of course, we come to chapter 2, and we have the story of Adam and Eve. And uh, here we have where God wanted somebody who really decided themselves to worship God and to obey God, whereas the people in Genesis chapter 1 really weren't given that choice. And so, we know, by the way, some people confuse chapter 2 and chapter 1. Now, they're two separate things. Just look at the order of things. Animals, male and female at the same time. Adam first, then animals, then Eve. Everything's quite different. He's, they were segregated in a garden. The others were told to go out and repent. So it's not the same story. And this particular man and woman had the choice to obey or disobey. And unfortunately, they chose to disobey. And they ended up with the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, they already had the knowledge of good, but they didn't know they did until they found out what evil was like and had the comparison between good and evil. And then, of course, we know that once they were driven out of the garden, things really went haywire. Just look at verse 22 of Genesis 3. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. And now let, let him, lest he put forth his hand, take also the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And so he drove out the man and the woman, and he placed at the east end of the garden of Eden cherubims, these interesting beings that do have wings, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And behold, it was very bad. Now that's not in the Bible, but that's what, in a sense, you could end up with that chapter Behold, instead of being very good. So the stories are very vastly different. One ends up with good, the other ends up, everything's gone uh, up, upside down. And uh, we just know there that uh wasn't long that sin that Adam and Eve had moved into really came to fruition, and the first two children, one killed the other. We now have murder on, on the planet. We have all evil has really broken forth. But we just read in chapter 4 and verse 26, but it says to Seth, to him that was born a son, and he called his name Enos, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So at that particular point, even though things had really gone bad and, and, and belly up as we would say, um, things, people started to turn back to God. But so at that particular point, God's relationship with man was not all that brilliant. Uh, but people started to call out to the Lord, and God could work on that. And then we go right through to the story of Noah, and uh, but on the way there is a man called Enoch, and um, we just see in chapter five and verse twenty-four, and Enoch walked with God, and he was he was not, for God took him. And in Hebrews chapter eleven, it gives more explanation of what happened. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his test translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Uh, but it goes on to say, but without faith it is impossible to please him. So what we do know is because of that statement, Enoch was a great man of faith. Otherwise he wouldn't have pleased God. And uh, so in the middle of this sort of bit of a downhill slide, we get to the flood. 
No, there was one man who stood out. We do believe, by the way, he mostly was the one who received the plans to build the the the, uh, the Great Pyramid in, in Egypt, but that's another story. And all we know is that there was a bit of good along the way, and then we get to chapter 6 and everything's gone bad, and uh, evil has really sprung out on the whole earth. And just in the verse 6 of chapter 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So this is a sad point we've come to, where God wanted to have this kingdom. He wanted people that would follow him and worship him, and he got to a point where evil had overtaken good. And these humans that he said, let's make them in our image, and let this happen and that happen, and bless them, it had all really gone sour. Uh, and then in verse 7 it says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man from whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and creeping thing and fowl of the earth, but repenteth me that I have made them. He had this sadness. You might say, he was saying, I wish I hadn't done it. But again, there is a great plan. Again, we don't get into the, what he predestinated or what he doesn't, doesn't matter. All we know is it says he had that feeling. But then Noah saved the day. It all was going bad, but then it says Noah found grace uh, in the eyes of the Lord. And then we had another chance. Man had another chance. And then we go through the flood, and then uh, eventually Noah and his family survived. And it all starts again. But it doesn't take very long before, again, things tend to go wrong. And then, praise the Lord, along comes a man called Abraham. And Abraham is a, a man who is a man, friend of God, who understood God beautifully and had, again, a great man of faith of the Old Testament. And God blessed this man, sort of separated him from all what was around him. He started giving him commandments. Go down here, do this, do that. And, of course, we know through Sarah, he had Isaac, and then Isaac had uh, Jacob, and he saw particularly Jacob, and he had 12 sons. And then we have what's called the story of the children of Israel. And God's dealing with this special people out of all the people on the, on the planet at that time. They had a special relationship, and they were, in a sense, benefiting from this great man of faith, Abraham. But then, of course, through the, the, the Bible, through the rest of the book of Genesis, we end up with them down in Egypt, and they end up being in bondage. Not that they were doing anything wrong at the time, but that's all, again, part of God's plan. Joseph going down, and later on the whole family. And then uh, later on we see there's great oppression comes upon these people, and they cry out to the Lord again. And the Lord hears their prayer, and he raises up uh, a man, of course, called Moses. Um, but immediately we see that there's nothing quite that closeness that maybe God would like wasn't quite there. And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5, and he said, draw not hither, this is to uh, Moses when he stopped to look at the burning bush, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. So you're not really able to come into the presence of God. You know, these shoes represent your old life and we would say your sin and so on. And it, it just sort of, was in a sense a bit of a, a, a an understanding that things weren't just high hockey dory simply like that. Um, and then in uh, chapter four, uh, we just see there uh, when he told uh, Moses to go in and what he had to say to Pharaoh. I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son. 
even my first one. This is to Pharaoh. And it came to pass that by the way, in the end, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So this is the guy he's just called to go and rescue his people. But it maybe indicates that things in the Old Testament were very exacting. And you could quite easily, if you didn't look out, offend God. And uh, um, Moses hadn't got around to circumcising his son. And uh, we see there on the way, wow, all of a sudden this happens. And uh, we just know there that um, uh, Zipporah, his wife, called him a man of blood because of would have upset the little boy to be circumcised. So things weren't maybe as simple as you would think that they would be. And then, of course, we go down into Egypt and he challenges Pharaoh and eventually, of course, he does bring out the children of Israel. And um, and then in chapter 19, uh, we just read in verse 12, And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. So this is the time of the coming of the law. We haven't got any law at this time. People walk just themselves by faith or belief. And now the law comes in. But at the very time that the law is giving, we know that things are not, again, perfect as they should be. And it was a scary thing. Whereas if you touch the mountain, you'll be struck down dead. So again, this relationship between God and man is maybe not as we know it today. Um, so um, we just say, uh, you know, at the end there it says you'll be put to death. And we read in the New Testament, of course, it describes the difference between that incident and later on when we come to the Lord. But in chapter 25 and verse 17, And thou shalt make a mercy seat. Now he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was an interesting thing. Out of all the uh, paraphernalia of the uh, of the temple, and the or tabernacle first in the temple, and all the other things. The one that really stood out was the Ark of the Covenant. It was this box. And inside it, it had three things later on. The first of all, it had what was called the law, the broken law, of, of the, when Moses came down from the hill and all the people very quickly had gone into paganism and, uh, and he threw down the law and it was broken. So in this box was the broken law and above it was a, a, a box, a lid called the mercy seat. So the mercy was over the law. And then facing each other above that mercy seat were the another two of these beings called cherubim, although these ones weren't living. But they represented again the division. And God said, oh, I'll just read what it says here uh, in verse 17, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, and thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten workshop I make them, in the ends of, of the uh, mercy seat. Uh, and make one cherub on one end, the other another cherub, and, and even on the mercy seat shall uh, ye make uh, the cherubims of the two ends. So here they represent again, I believe, this division. You can't quite come into my presence. Um, what's that? I'll read verse 20. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to, to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and if and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony of the law that I will give thee. And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat 
from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony or covenant and of all the things that I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So it's a, this sort of a situation. So um, no, later on we know the ark of the covenant plays a big part in the history of the children of Israel. But on this occasion, that's how important it was. And we know that there, there was then a big, uh, when they had the tabernacle, a big veil separating the holy place where the normal priest would go to where the Ark of the Covenant was sitting behind. And there between the two facing cherubims, their wings just touching, like in a little hollow above the mercy seat. And of course, mercy over, 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 over the law. That was how it would be later on. Mercy would, would become above the law. And uh, in that spot is what's called the Shahina glory. And that's when they had the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by dark from that very point. And, uh, but everything had to be done very carefully. You know, uh, Moses, uh, Aaron was told, the high priest, you only can go in once a year. And you must, there must not be sin in the camp. Otherwise you'll be struck down dead. So it was a scary thing at that time to get with a God that was so exacting. Yeah, keep going. Exodus 26. And, uh, we're talking about the veil between the holy place and the holiest of holies. And in verse 31, and thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet, fine twined linen of cunning work, with cherubim shalt thou be made. So again, here come these cherubims, the ones that were flaming swords of the, you might say, the, uh, between man and the Garden of Eden, and then later on above the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat. And again, this big curtain with his cherubims woven. And again, it was sort of this indicating, you know, you can't just walk in and say hello to God. And verse 33, And thou shalt hang up the veil uh, under the tashay or tashes, that thou mayest bring in thither uh, within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And that word divide is really the story of the Old Testament never quite got into his presence. And then, of course, we just start reading from Leviticus chapter 16, um, where, um, I'll just read it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron my brother, that he come not at all times into the place, the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So, Again, even when he went in once a year to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, um, if he did it twice, he'd be in trouble. You had to do it exactly right. Be careful with this God that you're worshipping, you do it right. Because if you don't do it right, you could end up dead. You could. And so uh, I just have the point I'm making about the Old Testament is the relationship with God and, and his followers in that particular time was uh, tenuous. It was uh, could be shaky, and um, so later on we see uh, we get through to the wilderness with Moses and build the walk with the the uh, with the uh, all the tabernacle and putting it up and down, following the cloud and, uh, and the pillar at night time and so on. And with forty years later, we come into finally into the promised land, and God's dealing with these people, they're His people. And um, we just read in Joshua chapter 5, in verse 13, And it came to pass that when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man 
over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua said unto him, he said unto him, um, went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? He's a pretty bold guy here, old Joshua. He wouldn't take this guy on if he was an enemy. And he said, No, but as the captain of the host of the Lord am I come. Maybe either Michael or God. We don't know exactly, but it sounds like Michael or Gabriel. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith the Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose, here we go again, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. So again, things are not as simple as you would think. You couldn't just talk to God. There was always a reminder that you're not really quite there. You're not worthy. And um, in First Samuel chapter 6, uh, we see an interesting little story as we know to do with the Ark of the Covenant where in the time of Eli the high priest they decided they were losing a battle and let's take the Ark out there. This one we talked about with the mercy seat and the cherubim and they take it out and the Philistines capture it. And then they find out that that wasn't such a good idea either. And they end up putting the Ark of the Covenant in front of their, their god Dagon, the fish god, where we get the, the fish helmet, which is still in Orthodox religion today. And, uh, and they, they get up in the morning and poor old Dagon's fallen over in front of the Ark. And then they sat him up again, the next day fell over again, heads off, hands have come off, and so on. And then the Philistines said, we don't like this thing. And they took it back on a, on a new cart. They, put a couple of cows pulling it, uh, who had just had their calves taken away from them, and they were sort of trying to find their, their calves and across the border into Israel between the Philistine country. And then we uh, see there that uh, uh, then an incident happened right there, and I'll read that in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 6. And he smote the men of Abeshemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord, even he smote the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Bethlehem said, Who was able to stand before this holy Lord God? So again, it was, Whoa, be careful what you do. And uh, they, I'm sure they had good intentions. Let's have a look what's in there. And uh, bingo, down they went, quite a lot of them. And then, of course, we have the story of David, who decides... They took the ark aside and just put it in somebody's house right there. I think it indicates it was in the cave in the hill or something. And uh, many, many years later, we see that uh, uh, David decided to uh, bring bring the ark up to uh, to Jerusalem. And by the way, it had been originally before the Philistines stole it in a place called Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, but it actually never went back to Shiloh. All this time it was down towards the Philistines, and when it did come back, it went straight to Jerusalem. And then later on the tabernacle also came to Jerusalem. So we just read the story here in First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 7. And they carried the ark of, of God in a new cart. That's exactly what the Philistines had done. So I guess how they copied that. That's the way you move it. They didn't check their Bible, did they? Uh, out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ao drove the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and were singing and with harps and with psalteries, with trembles and with cymbals and with trumpets. When they came into the threshing floor of Chido, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark 
for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. So this is a long time after, I think something like seven years later. A similar thing happened to when the men at uh, Beshemesh looked inside the ark. And he put forth his hand to stop it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put forth his hand on the ark, and there he died before the Lord. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, wherein for the place is called Periazzah, which means the breach of Uzzah. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? And um, so I dare say you just see, again, without going through any more Old Testament stories, that um, that relationship in the Old Testament could be a bit dicey at times. And you had to watch your step. You had to do things every, exactly. Finally, David got over his uh, sulking back in Jerusalem. And a few months later, went down. And guess what they did? They put the poles in the Ark of the Covenant. And they carried it the proper way. And nobody died that day because they did it. But the, the idea we get, it was very tenuous and difficult at times. And now let's go finally to the New Testament where God has promised a new way and a better way with these humans that he wants to be in relationship with. And in Ezekiel chapter 36 and in verse 24, we read a great prophecy here. Well, I'll take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And a new heart will I give you and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgment and do them. So God's prophesying a better way to be in relationship with these humans that he created in his own likeness. And again a great scripture in Isaiah chapter 28 in verse 9, where it refers to us being spirit-filled. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from milk and drawn from the breast. Those children, as Jesus said. And then in verse 11, to stammer, with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his people. This great prophecy of, doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but we know it's talking about the Holy Spirit when we read the New Testament. Verse 12 is an important verse, where he said to, to them, this is the rest where you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And he was talking about the day of rest. He said, the old Sabbath is finished, the 24-hour natural Sabbath, now I'm going to give you a 24-7, every minute of every day Sabbath. But he said, people don't listen, I'm still trying to keep the old system of law. And, but people muck up Christianity when they try to keep the law to please God, and, and yet be saved by grace. And um, then things change. Of course, we go to the New Testament, the Matthew chapter 3, and we have the, the call of um, of the time of uh, 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 John the Baptist. And in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That had never happened before. This is a new era, a new start. We now have the kingdom of heaven. You, if you want to be part of it, you need to repent. And Jesus pretty well repeats exactly the same a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast 
from the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The Lord, uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people sat in darkness, saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light has sprung up. And from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, well, God has sent his son to sort the situation out. And uh, we know that generally man rejected him. But that was God's plan. My son will now bring the gospel to you. And um, uh, in John chapter 3, well-known passage of Nicodemus, and again I'll just grab part of it, uh, just as there, in, in the, when this Pharisee came to Jesus, and in verse 3 of John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Very, very, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there had to be a change to mankind. He needed this thing called being born again, where he was going to be changed. And, and not until you're changed can you then have that wonderful relationship with God that you'd like to have. And of course Nicodemus was confused about that. We won't go into all that. But in verse 5 Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and if you have a marginal reference, it refers you to Mark chapter 16, verse 16, it says, uh, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's the marginal reference to being born of the water and of the Spirit. And that marginal reference is Acts chapter 2, and uh, verse 37 and 38. He said, um, If he is not born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So this was now God's way. Now in John chapter 14, he describes this new relationship that he has under these circumstances. And in John 14, Jesus said, in verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I'll pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. This promise had not been there until this moment. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth you. But ye know he who dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. He said, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And then in verse 20, I'm talking about the day we get saved, the day we receive the Holy Spirit. At that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Um, more that I could read, but let's just jump to, uh, uh, verse 24. He that loveth me, uh, not, uh, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not of mine, but the Father which sent me. These things I have spoken to you, being yet present with you. Um, verse 23, I'll go back to verse 23. Jesus answered, said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now this is very different to the Old Testament, where God's going to come into us and make his abode inside of us. There's nothing like that. Now and again the Spirit of God moved upon people and so but they weren't born again by that experience. Came and went. But now this is the Holy Ghost coming in, and with the Holy Ghost coming in is both Jesus and the Father. So Matthew 27, we come to the time of the cross. And I just read there in verse 50 of Matthew 27, and Jesus, when he cried with a loud voice, and it says later in John chapter 19, verse 30, it explains what he cried when he said, It is finished. 
Now yielded up your goats, back in Matthew 50. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. So here was this division we read about in the Old Testament, particularly the cherubims, shielding and stopping man as they were coming into the presence of the God. And right at the time that Jesus cries out, it is finished, all that we read about in the Old Testament, it is finished, and that type of relationship is gone. And the cherubim, bang, they're split open, one maybe one each side. They no longer can stop you coming into the presence of God. And that sort of is the great story of Jesus Christ. You know, as somebody once described what happened there, he hung between heaven and earth on the cross. Neither his hands touched heaven, nor his feet touched earth. And while he was hanging on the cross there, he reached up and took the hand of an offended God, and he reached down and took the hand of offending people, and he brought them together at the cross. So that is the great story of Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus said at the end of his ministry there, And behold, I will send the promise of my Father unto you, to tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you have been endured with power from on high. Don't do anything until you get filled with the Spirit, otherwise you won't have the New Testament uh, relationship with me. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 1, uh, in verse 6 it says, And the, they, the disciples at the time, uh, were to come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? They just didn't get it. The Old Testament, that, that was all over. It's not a time to bring in the, the might of King David again and all that sort of thing, get rid of the Romans. This has nothing to do with that. He did, and then he went on to say what it is to do with, in verse 8, and you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and under the outermost part of the earth. So, um, I think I'm nearly finished. Uh, we just see there this whole new thing had happened and man able to communicate with God and on the day of Pentecost they're all filled with the Holy Spirit to get the Isaiah 28 experience they speak in other tongues and then later on in that chapter we see a whole different sort of a world to the Old Testament and that's in the well known verses in Acts 2 verse 41 and they, they, and they that gladly received his word were baptised and the same day there was added on about 3,000 souls well done that would be exciting, wouldn't it? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking bread and in prayers. So this is not a national thing any longer. It's no longer the glory of Israel. This is people coming together now with one thing that unites them called the Holy Spirit. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers believe were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, with eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having faith with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be done. That's how a church should be. That's when people come to the Lord, when there's happy people, rejoicing and caring for each other, ministering to each other, whatever people's needs are, uh, equalizing, uh, whatever the word is, making people sound. Um, later on in uh, chapter 15, we have the story of where, uh, the Pharisees that have been converted in inverted commas were still trying to keep the Old Testament law. And uh, they tried to bring the law 
upon the, the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul, who actually was mostly far better qualified knowledge of the law than any of them, he was not just a Pharisee, he was a, an ex-Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees. He said, no, we shouldn't be doing that. We don't want to bring that old law that didn't work, like we just read. You know, so it never quite worked. And um, when Peter then related his experience with Cornelius, um, I'll read verse uh, uh, verse uh, 6 of Acts chapter 15. And the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, where the Gentiles should keep the law. And when they had been, there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice between us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and belief, Cornelius in his household. And God which knoweth the hearts gave, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost as he did unto us. And he made no difference between us and them, purifying their heart by faith. And then verse 10 is so important. Now therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the, of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We read about what that was like. We don't want to bring the And yet people still to this day often want to do that. So, um, okay, a couple more verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have a description between what we read in the Old Testament about when Moses went up in the mount and all the circumstances there. But um, in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, he makes a comparison between what it was like under the Old Testament in your relationship with that God, in a sense, same God, by the way, but uh, the New Testament wise. So in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, for you have not come under the mount that might be touched, might not be touched really, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of word, which voice they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They couldn't handle it, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned and thrust through with a dark. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceeding fear and quake. Now it talks about what it's like in the New Testament. But you have come unto Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, by the way, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and we mentioned Abel before, but just as it, and the blood of sprinkling, it speaketh better things than Abel, as though that would be one of the great people of the Old Testament. And this is, is a better way. So when we think right back there in Genesis 1, where he made these people man, you know, females in his own likeness, and he wanted to establish this relationship with them. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 22, 21, it says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So again, it makes that comparison. Don't frustrate the grace of God. You don't need it. It's all over the type of the New Testament. But now we've got the real thing. We don't need to go there. And one last scripture in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. And I heard it, so it's pretty well gone from Genesis to Revelation tonight. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So it's a big story in the middle, and we could sort of maybe wonder why God allowed this or why God allowed that. Really in the end, all I know is that once was just God. And all what happened, and soon there's going to be a great kingdom with, with just the millions of people where God's not going to be lonely. And we're going to be there, and it's going to be a fantastic life. You reckon this camp is good? It doesn't hold a candle for that. And all the people say, Amen. 